Okay, we're going to start. Um, we have good. Uh, I'll do a second, give my introductory introduction, and I'll introduce our two speakers who are here, and then the two speakers who are en route. Um, uh, anyway, my, my name is Tim Besley, and I'd like to welcome you this evening. I'm a member of the Economics Department at LSE, and also a member of the National Infrastructure Commission, uh, which are jointly convening this event on does the UK need its own uh, infrastructure bank. Now, I'm sure when, when you woke up uh, and, and, and uh, uh, learned the news, as, as we all did, that Britain was leaving the EU, the first item that came to your head was not, oh dear, the EIB will be a casualty of this. Perhaps some people were uh, thinking that, um, but by and large. But as, as uh, with many aspects of Brexit, as, as things have developed, we've all learned that um, there are uh, implications uh, for um, the UK and infrastructure financing in the UK from our exit from the EU, uh, since the EIB is the European Union's bank and uh, uh, is owned by the EU's 28, uh, soon to become 27 members, um, and who are the bank's shareholders, um, and is an important player in infrastructure uh, in the UK and uh, in, 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 in uh, Europe more generally, and uh, I'm sure as Tamsin will, will remind us, also outside the EU, which was uh, her responsibilities when she was uh, among her responsibilities when she was at the EIB. Um, so, um, uh, we've, the National Infrastructure Commission uh, is currently working on something called the National Infrastructure Assessment, which is to take a look out to 2050 at the UK's wider infrastructure needs. Um, and whether the, uh, whether the structures in place, which would include uh, issues of finance, uh, are, are in place to support the infrastructure needs of the UK economy over that long-term horizon. And so naturally, as part of the, the um, national infrastructure assessment, we are thinking about the question of what the UK needs and how it should uh, um, build, an, if, if, if needs be, an institution to support um, infrastructure investment in the UK. And this event is part of our, uh, um, uh, will, will contribute to our deliberations around that issue. Um, we have here this evening um, a very distinguished panel, or two, two of whom are in place and two who are on the, their way, to of, of knowledgeable experts on, on these uh, issues. And I'll introduce them in alphabetical order. Um, uh, uh, Danny Alexander, who is en route, uh, Sir Danny Alexander is Vice President and Corporate Secretary at the AIIB. Um, he, he brings two, two elements of experience to the discussion this evening. One, that he has been involved in setting up an infrastructure bank. Um, the other, that he was Chief Secretary to the Treasury under the coalition and therefore also has experience as a Whitehall insider in the kinds of issues that we face in funding and, uh, and identifying infrastructure uh, projects in the UK. Uh, Tamsin Barton is Chief Executive of Bond, the UK network for organizations working in international development, and uh, is not speaking in that capacity, but rather um, based on her experience uh, in, from 2010 onwards as an EIB Director General responsible for lending operations outside the EU and candidate countries. 
during which time she brought in a results framework and uh, got the EIB signed up to the International Age Transparency Initiative among the things she achieved during that time. So she's very well qualified to be talking about the issues this evening. Then um, Robert Bartlett, who's the head of infrastructure at Mitsubishi UFJ, uh, brings uh, a financial group, brings uh, a private, more private sector-oriented perspective. He has 18 years' experience within structured and project finance and during that time has been responsible for several financings across the piece as far as infrastructure sectors go. And then uh, finally, alphabetically, Kwasi Kwarteng is the parliamentary private secretary to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, he was elected member of parliament for Spelthorne in 2010, uh, and we hope will join us shortly, as will Danny Alexander. Um, so my attempt to drag out this introduction has not, uh, has not uh, led to two more speakers entering just yet. So I think what we will do, actually, if my uh, uh, two panelists will agree, is to begin uh, now. Um, this is a, a general uh, event, meaning that, that we are going to assume the, no prior knowledge of the issues, although I know there are many people in the room who are highly expert, and I, uh, our panelists are, are going to try and offer us a fully jargon and acronym-free uh, uh, take on these issues because with my own experience I know sitting in meetings about these things you very quickly realize there can be a lot of uh, knowledge that people have about these things which they, they use when they uh, trade in acronyms but we're told uh, we, we, we're, we're reassured by our panelists that that won't be true this evening so I'll hand over to Tamsin first um, if that's uh, okay and um, uh, then um, we will uh, proceed from there and hopefully by the time you sat down. So they're just going to speak for about seven minutes each. Uh, then we will have a bit of a structured, uh, uh, hopefully, interaction between the panel, and then we'll open it up for discussion from the floor and hopefully get a conversation moving that way. So first of all, would be Tamsin. Do you want to speak from there, or do you want to come to the lectern? I can come to the lectern. Thank you. Very good. Well, thank you, Tam. So thank you very much for that uh, lovely introduction, especially for making clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of our, our member organisations. Uh, and uh, to make clear that I'm a, a development person. So I must declare that I have absolutely no expertise at all in relation to UK infrastructure, but I'm going to try and bring that international development perspective. And we do in the international development community have a terrible propensity to jargon, so I've asked Tim to raise a flag if I come out with uh, jargon or acronyms, uh, but I'll aim to avoid it. So I, I did once write a, a, a paper, actually, for Claire Short on infrastructure and poverty reduction back in 2002, uh, so I guess that was the most expert relevant thing that, that, that I did. Uh, but probably for this evening, the, most, uh, the expertise I'll draw on the most is my time working in the EIB. So I'm going to start with the exam question. Does the UK need its own infrastructure bank? Well, need is, is uh, the word I would focus on there. Let's look at what we do know about need. The World Economic Forum, I gather, ranks Britain 24th in the world for the quality of our infrastructure. On roads and railways, to quote Sir John Armit, president of the Institute of Civil Engineers, are overcrowded. Our water supply is falling to critical levels in some areas, and our utilities are often far more expensive than those of our European neighbours. Well, I would say 24th isn't too bad if you're looking from a global perspective uh, like I am, but I'll come back to that. I know that we're going to have new figures and new analysis coming out from the National Infrastructure Commission, but let's take 24th as our, our starting point. 
The question of need has really come to the surface because of Brexit, a realisation that European structural funds are going, and in particular this evening we're focusing on the EIB, uh, no longer being available to lend in the UK. So that's what's brought up that question, and people have started mooting a UK infrastructure bank. But should politicians heed the siren call of an announceable uh, which is what, of course, is something that they frequently look for. I would uh, urge a little bit of caution on that. But let's first look at what we'd be losing in losing the EIB. Well, favourable rates above all. Uh, longer tenors, the cornerstone of investment crowding in the private sector. And most importantly, because that's actually how the lending really increased in the UK, a counter-cyclical role, uh, which it's normally only possible uh, with some public funding in some way. But most important of all, I think, is scale, and I'm going to come back to this. Many people will not be aware that also the EIB boasts an enormous amount of technical expertise. In my time there, there were 250 engineers, economists, who are all institutional specialists. Uh, and that relates to the fact that it's a policy-driven bank it's very strongly focused on social and public goods, uh, in particular low-carbon investment. So, can that really be replaced? Well, international experience suggests wait before you dream up another new institution. So let's look first at what there is already and why we might not just use that a bit more. So some ideas have been mooted on this. There is already a UK guarantee scheme, and that could be combined with loans. It would be possible to extend the mandate of the Public Works Loan Board or within the Debt Management Office. And, of course, there's the British Business Bank with its 90 partners. So might we not want to start there? Or we could start with the last uh, political initiative to set up a bank, which well, possibly the last, I'm not sure if there's been another one since, uh, the Green Investment Group, as it now is, because, of course, it's been sold off. But it is still under some political pressure to continue investing in the UK. Now, all of those uh, would be good in that they're already there, but they all have some downsides, not least that they appear on the balance sheet, which is a big issue for the Treasury. So let's go to this question of a bank then. Well, that too, of course, is not going to be off balance sheet like the EIB. But I think that there are other more important downsides probably. Well, first of all, the structure and above all the mission, the mandates are going to be contested. An experience would suggest that it's going to be subject to political pressure. And even if it's not, then it will be perceived as such, which creates its own problems. It's going to take an unbelievably long time to build the technical expertise, which costs a lot. And again, I'd say from international experience, multilateral is always better. To take some wording from a recent article on the AIIB, which we're going to hear more about, multilateral, multilateral institutions, that means the imposition of disciplines and international responsibility on big powers. And good examples of what's important in this respect are transparency, I think that's particularly important when there are political pressures uh, at stake. Predictability is another uh, key benefit of multilateralism because of the need to arrive at consensus between different shareholders. So it wouldn't be subject to the kind of political reversals, which in my view and in the view of many led to the selling of the Green Investment Bank 
so early. But what's the biggest downside? As I mentioned earlier, I think that's scale. It's the time to scale. The ramp-up is very long. So the GIB, since 2012, by five years on, had invested 2.3 billion of public money in 60 projects. It's not bad. It's not bad. Total value of over 10 billion. However, how long before any UK infrastructure bank could achieve the efficiency and the scale of a supranational like EIB, which has invested over 1 trillion euros since its foundation in 1958? Over the last five years in the UK, EIB has supported projects worth 46 billion. And the president of the bank, Werner Hoyer, has suggested it could take 10 years to get to a scale of KFW, the, the, if that's, is that a familiar acronym to people? The German Development Bank, which operates uh, in Germany and globally. And that's a similar type of scale. And I think that could be an underestimate, but I admit I haven't done the number crunching. An expert quoted in the FT suggested it would require 15 to 20 billion to replicate the scale of EIB lending for infrastructure. So where could the UK get the capital? Well, you might think it can retrieve it, repatriate it from the EIB. Wouldn't that be a better use? After all, it's 16% of the shares, but only gets 9% of the lending on average. Sounds very attractive, I think. A little while ago, it was hoped we'd be able to get 10.2 billion back. That would be nice. However, as set out in the withdrawal agreement, we're not going to see 10.2 billion in our, our pockets anytime soon. It's going to be basically 12 years before the paid-in capital is repaid, only at a rate of 300 million a year. And as for the callable, that liability won't be gone till maybe 2064. Uh, so. It doesn't really make sense, unfortunately, to repatriate that capital. So I'm coming to my conclusion, back to the original exam question. Is a UK infrastructure bank really needed? The UK, unlike other European countries, didn't see the need to set up a national promotional bank, as they did mostly many years ago. So is there really a market failure that needs to be addressed? Some industry respondents, we will hear from one in a moment, would say that the liquidity gap that there is could mostly be filled by private investors, except for some social and environmental projects. Could be maybe argued that some regional projects would need more subsidy, especially in poorer regions. But, yeah, I need to hear more about this market failure. And from a wider perspective... I believe it could only be justified to bring in the subsidy that's involved in setting it up and operating it. It wouldn't be subject to corporate tax, the equity would be unremunerated, and that's without considering the cost of design, which I'm not sure were fully considered in relation to the Green Investment Bank. So that could only be justified if it's going to have global environmental benefits. And I could actually only see a benefit in such a bank investing in green projects if it invested also beyond the UK in countries with greater need and with levels of subsidy calibrated in relation to that. Interestingly, Penny Morden, the International Development Secretary, has just in the last few days mooted setting up uh, an International Development Financing Institution in addition to the Commonwealth uh, Development Corporation that exists. And this could be like the German Development Bank, KFW, which covers both. 
If it is to be a public institution, to ensure public goods, it should be multilateral. UK firms could compete as at EBRD, are, are multilateral down the road in London, and they are still successful. So my conclusion, the best option to minimise the loss to infrastructure uh, is to find an arrangement for the UK to continue getting access to EIB lending. However, this is unlikely to happen at the required scale unless there's a treaty change to allow the UK to remain as a shareholder. And funds for blending would still be required in relation to regional uh, infrastructure, at least. So we might need to wait until the multilateral development banks, such as the AIIB, uh, operate in, development, in developed economies as the emerging economies catch up. Maybe one day the AIB will invest in UK infrastructure. I'm looking forward to that day because <laughs> development will have been achieved globally by then. If a, a UK infrastructure bank is to be set up, in my view, it should be like Italy's Casa Depositi e Prestiti, which has just recently taken on the mandate of fulfilling the UN Sustainable Development Goals and do that globally. Thank you very much. Um, Robert, do you want to go next and give Danny just a bit more reading time, and then uh, Danny will go. Are you happy with that? Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Robert Bartlett, and I run the infrastructure business within MUFG across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. So the first acronym is EMEA. Okay. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with MUFG, um, it's MUFG Bank is the largest bank in Japan um, and one of the largest worldwide with representation in over 40 countries. MUFG is a global leader in project finance and has structured finance offices across the globe, um, Sydney, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, New York, Los Angeles and of course here in London. We have over 320 uh, professionals across these offices, and we have, the, we have a very much an integrated platform uh, whereby we look at commercial bank debt, um, institutional debt, both public and private, and also have a financial advisory capability as well. Um, the project finance business covers um, quite a, a, a number of disciplines. Um, it covers energy, so power to the grid, um, renewable energy, uh, oil and gas, both upstream and downstream, and of course infrastructure. Um, on the infrastructure side, we look at greenfield, we look at brownfield, so we look at greenfield on the public side, brownfield more often than not on the private side. Um, and this is looked at through corporate infrastructure and also the long-term government-public-private partnerships, uh, and that's the equivalent of the old PFI uh, and now the PF2s, which hopefully you'll all be familiar with. Um, when I talk about corporate infrastructure, it's really operational assets, so brownfield assets such as airports, ports, um, and, and they're very much considered as critical infrastructure. Um, uh, and they're assets that have monopolistic characteristics um, and usually very high barriers to entry. Um, so, so, I mean, an airport is a perfect example uh, of that. Um, infrastructure is considered um, 
a, a very, very attractive asset class. So that's a very important point to, to, to start this evening um, on. And, and it attracts a very wide range of investors. So I know the purpose is to focus on the UK, uh, the UK Infrastructure Bank and also the potential exit of the EIB, but it does have a very much, it, it, it's considered very attractive and it does have a lot of interest, um, not only by banks such as myself, um, but also institutional investors. You now have um, pension funds, insurers, they're all looking at this as an asset class, um, and we'll come on to why in a moment. But these, they're basically chasing predictable yields, um, and these projects pretty much all offer, offer those. Um, back to MUFG for a moment, what, what, what am I doing here? Well, the MUFG has committed more than four and a half billion pounds um, across project finance within the UK. Um, so it's a substantial amount of money. And within infrastructure, that's over three billion. Um, that's lending across all types of infrastructure, transportation, social accommodation, um, energy from waste, broadcasting. Um, it's an asset class that we like, um, and it's certainly an asset class that we think we understand. Sorry about this, thank that's you. Okay. Where do you want me to sit? So you come here. Thank you. Um, some of the projects that you might all be familiar with, we've actually we've been actively involved in the Thames Tideway Tunnel, which was a huge project across uh, across London, um, and we've been very large lenders to some fairly big rail projects over the past few years. Um, Thameslink, um, New Rolling Stock, and also the Intercity Express programme as well with, with with Hitachi, and you're seeing the new Hitachi trains going up the um, West Coast now. Um, we've worked alongside the EIB on many projects. Um, we've been involved with the UK Guarantee Scheme, and we've also lent alongside and also to the Green Investment Bank um, before it was um, bought out by, by Macquarie. Um, hopefully we'll talk about the merits of whether the UK needs its own infrastructure bank, but for me... Um, just as crucial, hopefully, this evening, the debate I would like to hope happens is more about the fact that there is a need for a more extensive project pipeline for the UK PPP market. Um, for, from what I see at the moment, there are only three large greenfield projects um, in the system going through procurement in England at the moment. Um, you have the Silvertown Tunnel, you have the A303, the um, bypass going through Stonehenge, and you have the Lower Thames crossing. Um, other than that, there, there are smaller projects, but I mean, these are the, the, the only three substantial projects out there at the moment on the PPP side. Um, if we look back in time, um, if we look at post-May, sorry, pre-May 2010, PPPs had a capital value of £50.6 billion. Um, post-May 2010, it was £8.4 billion. Um, so that goes to show that if we look at those numbers, 86% of that total investment was, um, was secured pre-2010. Um, that's quite an important statistic for me. Um, as I said a moment ago, it's a very attractive asset class, um, both from an equity perspective um, and also a debt perspective. And appetite for funding UK infrastructure is extremely high. Um, Again, something that I'd like you um, all to, to be fully aware of. Um, 
Despite the uncertainty around Brexit, um, the UK from our side remains very attractive to foreign investment um, on account of strong legal framework and the economy. Um, there's a great deal of liquidity across debt markets, which is picking up on Tamsin's point that she made in her opening remarks. Um, and that, that liquidity is especially um, apparent throughout Europe, um, given all of the quantitative easing programs that, that, that we've had going on. Um, but for me, the pipeline is just not large enough at the moment to, to really draw in this liquidity. Um, the subplot of this is quite interesting. Um, and, and what I'm seeing now is an ever-broadening definition of the infrastructure asset class. Um, and we're seeing equity chasing these broader asset classes um, with debt that will naturally follow. Um, and we're, we're using a phrase here, we are moving from core infrastructure to core plus infrastructure. Um, and with that, um, there is likely to be greater market risk. Um, you could have shorter term offtake arrangements. Um, and there's often a need to believe in the story, believe in the expansion story or the growth story. Um, technology and digitalization is a key example of, uh, of that broadening definition of infrastructure. Um, alongside infrastructure, I also look after a housing finance business, um, whereby we have a number of relationships with housing associations. And the establishment of the housing infrastructure fund is very much welcomed from our side. Um, uh, and I believe that that will um, help, um, it will certainly achieve its purpose, and that will be, it will unlock sites um, in areas of greatest housing demand and help deliver those 100,000 new homes in, in England. Uh, and the reason why I say that is I sit with many housing association clients, and they have to fight with the idea of how they provide the infrastructure to build these homes. They can build the homes, but they need the infrastructure around them um, to, to, to do that. Um, so I look forward to sharing the views on all things infrastructure this evening, um, debate the merits of a UK infrastructure bank, and also hopefully have a conversation around the EIB as well. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, the, the observant among you will have noted we now have a full panel. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, our next panelist is going to be uh, Danny Alexander, who I actually introduced before you arrived, but he's uh, Vice President of the, and Corporate Secretary of the uh, relatively newly created uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, so, firstly, my apologies for arriving a little bit late. Um, uh, and I'm sorry that I missed the introduction, but it sounds like it was a favorable one, so that's great. Um, and thank you very much for inviting me to take part in this uh, event. And uh, let me start by saying I was a politician once, but I'm not anymore. So I'm not going to comment on this from a political perspective. Uh, Quasi, no doubt, will give his, uh, 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 give his, his own views. Um, and I now work for a multilateral development bank based in, in Beijing. Uh, but I think this is quite a complicated question. So rather than kind of coming down on one side or the other, as, 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 as Tamsin clearly did, what I'd like to do is to shed some light on a few of the issues that I think are relevant to the consideration of this question and to think about it at least in part from the perspective of 
Um, and Tamsin said, well, maybe one day the AIB will develop to a point where we could finance infrastructure in the UK. I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, um, but that's not on our, 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 uh, part of our planning at the moment. Um, but th these kind of ideas to set up new institutions that need capitalization at the start do come to the AIB from time to time and, and to other institutions too. So perhaps I could uh, offer a perspective based on the sorts of things that we would look at if we were to be asked to, to, to consider uh, financing this, this kind of of idea. Um, and maybe just to start with, I'll say a word about the AIB, but before I do, um, also about uh, my kind of other previous experience on this as Chief Secretary to the Treasury in the UK, um, the Green Investment Bank has been mentioned. That was established uh, during my time in office. I was very involved in that. The idea came at least in part from my own uh, uh, party, the British Business Bank. We also set up the UK Guarantee Scheme, which was a another attempt to create conditions to mobilize greater finance for, for infrastructure in the, in the UK. We developed and expanded the National Infrastructure Plan and has now been developed further under uh, the commission of which Tim is, uh, 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 is part. So there's quite a lot of relevant experience uh, in the UK as well as internationally to draw upon uh, when considering this. The, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is a new multilateral uh, development bank the remit is a focused one to invest in infrastructure that supports the sustainable uh, economic development uh, of Asia. Uh, we started our work in uh, January 2016. Um, I moved to Beijing in February 2016 to take up my position as VP uh, 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 there. It's the first new multilateral development bank of the 21st century. We had uh, 57 uh, founding member countries, including the UK, possibly one of the last... Uh, sort of useful decisions that the coalition government made before uh, the election in May 2015. Um, uh, uh, and I think we're off to a, to a strong start. We've already invested in projects, I think, in 14 countries, about $4.2 billion of, of, of financing so far, and following very much the MDB model of high standards, of strong governance, and so on. And so thinking about the question before us, what are the, what are the issues that, 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 that need to be considered? Um, Tamsin focused very much rightly on what is the economic need for, for, for such a, 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 an institution. When we established the, 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 the Green Investment Bank uh, in the UK, it was focused very much on a particular market failure that we'd identified around certain categories of green investment where we felt that the market was not properly understanding what the risks really were, and so finance wasn't coming forward in the way um, that, 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 that we believe the country needed, and so a new institution was created to foster that. It seemed to work um, uh, uh, pretty well, and obviously the current government's taken decisions about privatizing uh, uh, that. Multilateral institutions like the AIB um, are, are, exist because there is not a, 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 an adequate source of either financing or other expertise to support the development of, of, of projects, particularly in in, in, in developing countries. And so I think a proper understanding of what is the market failure or what is the, what is the, the, what is the need in the market for, for a new institution needs to be uh, the first part of it. What does that economic assessment actually look like? Secondly, governance issues are absolutely uh, critical. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the point was made earlier that um, you know, political independence is a key part of the basis of multilateral institutions, so it also should be of national institutions. If you want a bank or another institution that's able really to, 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 to work effectively as a market participant, you know, how, how is it 
how, how is it independent or how is it related to, 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 to government? Obviously, for an international institution, you know, we have many, many member countries. Um, uh, and through the international treaty, which set up the AIIB, the, uh, the non-political nature of decision-making is enshrined in that kind of founding, um, uh, founding, founding document. But if you want to set up, and if you want to set up a, uh, an institution, then you need to make sure that it's really focused on what is the economic rationale of the projects that, uh, that it's investing in. Um, thirdly, uh, environmental and social issues. Um, again, for the AIB, um, we have very high standards of uh, environmental and social uh, governance that we look at in the projects that we uh, invest in. In some parts of the world, those, are not, the, the, those standards are not automatically followed in, in, uh, in domestic decision-making, and, and that's a, an added value that an MDB can bring to uh, the projects that we uh, invest in. Clearly, in the UK, those sorts of standards are part of the natural system, so that's probably not an issue here. Um, another area where the institutional expertise can be valuable is in how, how do you go about developing the pipeline of projects? Is there a need for uh, advice or support for governmental institutions, be they central government or local government or, uh, or, or indeed private sector, um, uh, to help actually bring forward projects that are bankable, that are well-structured, that are economically uh, justified, uh, so that they can then uh, be developed and, and, and financed. That's obviously a key role that an institution like the AIB can play in, in, in our, in our uh, client countries. Indeed, the United Kingdom has contributed to a special fund for project preparation that the AIB has established to give grants to help uh, the, most, uh, the, the developing country members of the bank to develop uh, good quality um, uh, projects. Supporting the development of a, a pipeline of of, of, of green projects, particularly offshore wind and other categories, as part of the rationale for the Green Investment Bank, um, also. And then, of course, there are other barriers: um, uh, regulation, uh, planning, uh, policy frameworks that exist in different areas. Um, in some countries, um, uh, uh, MDBs like the World Bank have played a role in helping those countries to develop the policy frameworks, which then enable good infrastructure projects to come forward. You know, how are uh, energy projects remunerated. What is the, uh, the, 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 the power purchasing arrangements that exist in the, in the legislative frameworks in those, in those countries? That's an area where an international institution uh, like ours can, can, can sometimes uh, play a role. Uh, in, in the case of this question about a national institution for the UK, there's a question about how would it interact with, with government in, in, in that space? Um, or or would, it, would it play that role at all? Isn't it perhaps properly the role of government itself to work out what is the right answer to reforming the planning system or, 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 or whatever, as opposed to creating a new institution uh, to do that? And then uh, two, other, uh, uh, two other points. Um, one of the things that we wrestled with when creating the Green Investment Bank was, you know, what is the structure of this institution and how does it fit into the nation's public finances? Um, there are public finance rules, quite rightly so too. Uh, uh, and that's not just speaking as a former chief secretary to the treasury. Um, you know, government needs to have some control over how much it's spending. If an institution is in the private sector, then how is it going to relate to the government? There is a tension and a trade-off that would need to be uh, resolved um, in that space. And so then 
you know, with such an idea coming to us from one of our, one of our member countries, we then look at, well, what is the right institutional structure to try and achieve the objectives? Is a bank the right institutional structure? Is it a fund? Is it a, an advisory institution? There are many different ways to handle these, uh, to handle these questions. Um, and so I think it's great that this question is being asked, but it seems to me there's quite a lot of issues that need to be studied very carefully uh, to work out in helping the UK to meet its distinctive infrastructure challenges, of which there are very many. Um, is a new institution needed? And if it is, what is the right structure for such a new institution? I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. Um, and, uh, you know, Tamsin uh, rightly pointed, and I perhaps was occasionally guilty of this myself, to the um, desire of politicians to have things to announce. Um, that certainly cannot be the major motivating factor uh, in, 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 in this case, because uh, if this question is going to be answered uh, in the right way, it needs to be to create something that's for life and not just for Christmas. And so um, uh, with that, let me finish. Thank you. <laughs> So, so finally, we'll have a, a view from Kwasi Kwarteng, who's the Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Chancellor. Um, Kwasi. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's great to be here. It's especially an honor um, with such an august panel. And Danny and I were, as he remembers, uh, perhaps not as fondly as I do, uh, colleagues uh, in the coalition government. And I have to say that it's great to see him because I actually see him face to face. I spent most of the time in the 2010-15 Parliament on the back benches looking at the back of his head. You know, when it's, <laughs> uh, so it's quite nice to see a different perspective uh, from Danny. And I just wanted to pick up on a few, a few of uh, his remarks. Um, I'm sorry I was late, so I didn't get to see, uh, hear the introduction, but I've gathered what the, um, the tenor of those remarks, the opening remarks were. Um, I feel that uh, really from the Treasury point of view, in terms of how I understand uh, where the Treasury is coming from, I think there are two issues. I think there is one issue relating to the general desirability, theoretical if you like, or even practical, of an, inv an, an infrastructure bank. And the second issue, so that's a general theoretical discussion that we could have. And the second issue is what Danny alluded to earlier in his uh, remarks is this nature of funding and particularly balance sheet liability, UK balance sheet, um, public spending, the fact that we've run a deficit uh, for the last 17 years uh, in a row. Um, those public finance issues, I think, bear very materially on this debate. The second thing uh, I wanted to talk about was, uh, very briefly, is the EIB. Uh, as you will know, we haven't left the EU yet. We, uh, the Chancellor has been very keen to stress that he wants to have a, a fruitful dialogue with the EIB, uh, and that's something that we should, we should promote. Now, in terms of our own capacity to have an infrastructure or an uh, investment bank of that kind, I have no doubt that we can do that. Uh, London has a huge wealth of expertise uh, professionally across all sorts of areas of finance, we have lawyers, we have the bankers, uh, we have fund managers, we have a very, very uh, well-integrated and sophisticated uh, financial market. And I have no doubt that we could replicate um, the, the structure that we're talking about. Um, I think also, in terms of the argument within the department, uh, there is also an, an ideological issue. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure... 
I never quite knew uh, where Danny stood on these uh, issues. He was far too discreet uh, when he was Chief Secretary. But the current Chief Secretary... Hello. <laughs> glad to hear it. But the current Chief Secretary is someone who is, uh, will be very sceptical about um, allowing government balance sheet to crowd out, in that traditional phrase, uh, private sector in, uh, investment. So there has to be a, a real sense of market failure uh, for, the, for the government, or for a rationale for the government to step in. Um, I think also that's probably uh, the Chancellor's view. Uh, he has a very fiscal, uh, fiscally conservative... Um, I wouldn't say he's a small state person. I mean, that's a silly phrase. But he's someone who's very mindful of what the public sector can do and what the private sector can and should do. So that's, that's another debate. And the thing that I think Danny really revealed himself as, a, as a, an ex-politician um, was... Uh, his sensitivity to the pipeline of projects. What do you actually decide to build? Because from my point of view, and my uh, direct economic, uh, biggest economic uh, supporter as a uh, constituency MP, my biggest economic interest, is Heathrow Airport. Um, and that's, a, you know, the expansion of which was a classic uh, bit of infrastructure uh, proposal. Now that has been the third runway. Whether to build a third runway in Heathrow has been a debate for 15 years. Uh, it was in 2003 when the Labour white paper um, recommending a third runway was published. So you can have all the um, capital in the world, but you also have to have structures and a mechanism to decide what infrastructure you're, going to, you're actually going to spend uh, on. And that has a whole host of political problems and procedural issues and judicial review and consultations and all the rest of it, um, which um, I think is, is, is very relevant because any uh, capital spending over, let's say, £5 billion or even less is going to have huge political impact. And you're in the realm of, of politics. You're not talking about finance. So I think that um, I think there's a much wider, as Danny uh, suggested, I think it's a very wide uh, question when you say, does the UK need its own infrastructure bank? I think that opens up a whole host of other questions, uh, some of which we may discuss in the, in the panel discussion. Um, but I think it, you know, it's, a, it's a big, big issue. And I think there is a big political uh, question mark about how we actually come up with infrastructure decisions in this country. I know that we've set up a National uh, Infrastructure uh, Commission, but I think that's really the beginning of, uh, of a solution to the problem uh, and not the end of it. So thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. So thanks to all, all of our panelists. What I think we'll do is go straight to audience questions um, since uh, time is relatively tight and I want to give you all an opportunity to uh, quiz our panelists and to bring up tricky issues that they may or may not have covered. What I'm going to do, um, we've got roving mics, so I ask if you wait till one of those arrives, and I'm going to collect questions in batches of three. Uh, and then I'll invite the panel, perhaps with my own gloss in a few cases, to comment on the questions that have been raised. So who would like to go first? Oh, right. Three hands up spontaneously. So all in the same neighborhood. I will come to different parts of the room, but there are three close together. There. So in terms of efficiency of mic traveling, that would be good. Uh, thank you for organizing uh, this event. Uh, what is, for each of the panelists, um, the biggest danger of not setting up? An infrastructure bank. Okay, the biggest danger for those who didn't hear, the biggest danger of not setting up an infrastructure bank. Okay, 
hello. Um, my question is, um, Tamsin and uh, Robert wrote, both raised the issue of um, the market having not failed yet. Can we afford to wait until the market fails? Can we afford to wait till the market fails? And then there was somebody just behind there for the third question. Uh, thank you, Chair. Martin Chapland uh, from the Institution of Civil Engineers. Uh, I just wanted to ask the panel, do they believe the future of spending on public infrastructure is on a private-public partnership or on a market-led uh, proposal uh, format as the Department uh, for Transport is currently proposing? Right, three good questions there. Who would like to respond to any of those? If, if you, you're all looking down. <laughs> Danny, why don't you start? Um, okay, three great questions. Um, let me try and just say something about the first two. Um, what are the dangers of not setting up an infrastructure bank? I mean, that's quite a difficult question to answer because, in a sense, you have to say, well, what are, the, what are the risks and problems that actually currently exist at the moment? Do they constitute a market failure or are they governmental failures or policy failures that are, you know, probably no one here would say the UK's infrastructure is perfect. Probably no one here would say um, the way that projects come forward is perfect. No doubt the system has been improved with, with the Commission, as I hope it was improved by various things that, that, that we did and the previous governments did. Um, and so you have to start by saying, well, what are the problems that we're trying to, 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 to resolve? Is it uh, an insufficient pipeline of projects? Is it other barriers? Quasi's comments were interesting because they reflected on the failures of the political system to get to grips with major infrastructure challenges. You know, if you have a debate about a particular project, albeit a controversial one, for 15 years, going through various processes and not being able to come out with a... Um, with a, with a economically rational answer for the, for the country yet, um, though maybe I haven't, because I've been in Beijing, I haven't necessarily caught up with what the, the latest outcome is, um, then, then arguably you've got a serious problem there, but maybe it's not a market failure, maybe it's a political failure. Is that going to be solved by uh, an, an infrastructure bank, or is it going to need some other kind of uh, 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 structure to put in place? Um, the the, the, the danger for the UK is not being able to marshal the finance, public and private, um, to develop the infrastructure it needs to support the growth and productivity and the, uh, uh, and, and which we need and the developing our economy to compete effectively in, in, in the world. Um, that's the danger we should be focused on and we should be trying to ask the question not what's the danger of not having an infrastructure bank but what is the right institutional structure to ensure that we can solve those uh, uh, those problems. And then the point about market failures, well, uh, if the market is working effectively, then it will be de delivering the infrastructure finance that the country needs. Um, and if it's failing, we should be able to tell that, even if it's not, uh, uh, not necessarily self-evident. So I don't think um, it's a question about being able to afford to wait. A market failure is not a moment in time. It's a... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a feature of a system which analysts should be able to identify as part of this process. Okay, who else would like to respond on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, you want to do the market yeah. failure from your perspective? Y yes, I mean, I'll, I'll pick up on, the, on, on that point. I mean, I, th I think in, in terms of, of, of what, it, what, it, what is market, market failure, I mean, we see from, from a PPP, PFI, PF2 perspective, um, 
it, it's not always been straightforward. Um, we've we've had criticism laid down by the National Audit Office on on a number of of projects. Um, you are starting to um, look around and wonder if wonder if there are enough international infrastructure businesses um, still looking at, at the UK, um, particularly on the contractor side. Um, we talk about no market failure, but we've, also, we've had a hell of a lot of work to do over the last few months with regards to the Carillion fallout. Um, so in terms of market failure, there, there, are, there are challenges. Um, but I, I come back to the point that there is that there is a need for a clear pipeline, um, uh, and then we can we can test that that liquidity, um, uh, and that is certainly happening across other parts of Europe. Um, you're seeing very very active pipelines across Germany, across the Netherlands, um, across Belgium, um, uh, over in Ireland as well. So there's there's very active pipelines, and I just think from our side. Um, we need we need the ability, and we need to see those that, that those projects coming up and going through procurement. Do you want to take the PPP as well? Uh, yeah, PPP. In, so, sorry, I'm going to ask. Can I have that question again? The third question. Uh, apologies if I wasn't clear. Uh, essentially, with PF2 accounting for currently 0.4% of spending on public infrastructure projects. Is there a future for public-private partnerships or uh, are market-led proposals? Uh, you may be aware the Department of Transport issued a call for a new train line completely privately financed uh, to Heathrow from Waterloo in the last month, for instance. So uh, is there a future for PPP with PFI under current scrutiny? Uh, and is the uh, is response essentially market-led proposals? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I think I'll answer that relatively um, quickly. I, we certainly believe that there is a future for um, PPPs, um, for PF2, PF2s in the UK. Um, it, it's, it's a procurement process that's understood. It's had heavy investment over the years. Um, and there are, that, that, that there are merits to that. Um, and the example I've just mentioned about Carillion that has very much backed out risk to the private sector um, in terms of its PFI um, historic contracts. So that, that there is risk transfer within PPP and we believe it's a system that has worked here, not only worked here, but it's been exported to many, many countries around the globe um, whereby they're picking up on, on the practices and the contractual framework around PPP. So we, we remain very positive about that uh, and we hope that there is more. So Anthony, per you want to come perhaps up? I can just add a, a couple more points on the first two. Um, on the, the biggest risk of not doing it. I think at, at the macro level, there's clearly a concern that there's the threat, uh, go along with what Danny has said, it's, a, it's potentially a threat to economic growth if our infrastructure is poor. And there's a lot of talk about productivity as a big issue in the UK. This has to be part of the answer. But 
The thing that's not so clear is whether you actually need to have this institution to ensure that we improve the quality of our infrastructure at the right cost to the public purse, and that's you know, part of the debate we're having. And that relates to the point about market failure. Uh, I see market failure as, as something very dynamic. Uh, if you look at what's happened with green investment, that's very clear. Uh, basically, you've seen high-risk investment at the time in technologies like offshore wind, uh, where once uh, it's, it's clear that it is uh, marketable, then you will see crowding in of investment where it had to be, the initial investment had to be public uh, or more, with more public subsidy to it. And we're seeing a completely different view now uh, with all the debate about stranded assets. Uh, and so what used to be just considered as externalities are, are now being considered internally. So I think that's perhaps clearest on the green side. But in any case, I think that the areas where the market is really failing in the UK are in, in relation to the poorest regions and in relation to social infrastructure investment where the EIB has been quite active, such as housing, for example, which we haven't really talked about. But it's probably not the National Infrastructure Commission's priority. It's not in our remit, I should say. Um, there was some debate when the National Infrastructure Commission was set up is where housing should sit in relation to what it does, and uh, we have no direct responsibility. Of course, indirectly, patterns of settlement are intimately related to infrastructure development, so we can't, in a sense, completely take it out of what we think about, but it's not an official part of our remit. Okay. Um, seeing two, I'm seeing three here, so I'm going to go there. Uh, well, actually, we'll start there, and then I'll go there. Okay, very good. My question's for Danny, and it's a slightly impertinent one, so forgive me. Um, is your invitation on this panel a reflection that China's dominance of the AIIB has turned it more into a national rather than a multilateral bank? Um, and perhaps more kindly, what are the lessons that we could take from the supposedly multilateral AIIB for a national UK bank? Okay, thank you. Um, you, you got the question, Danny, yeah? yeah? I've got the question. I've got the answer. Okay. <laughs> Even better. That's right. Okay. Uh, we'll go over there, and then there'll be one in the middle. Okay. Hi, David Blackman, representing uh, freelance journalist, representing Utility Week magazine policy correspondent. Um, last week, Claire Perry announced the, uh, the, 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 the kick-starting of process for the UK to become a, um, a net-zero carbon emissions um, uh, economy by the, by, by the, in, the, in the second half of this century. Um, there's been a lot of discussion here today about uh, market failures, um, what, are the, what, are, what, what are the real market failures that the uh, panel believes need to be remedied on the, in, on the energy side in order to meet that objective of a zero carbon emissions economy? Thank you. Okay, and then there's a question in the middle there. Uh, so thank you all for your time this evening. So uh, just, uh, I'm just keen to understand, so do the panel believe that Brexit may not have happened if we invested in these sorts of initiatives like 10 or 15 years ago in underprivileged and undernourished parts of the UK outside of London? Thank you. Okay, very interesting question. Okay, um, Kwasi, you were, you were silent in the last sure, round. Sure, so, so I will... Give you an opportunity um, to remedy that now. I think the carbon... Uh, obviously, I can't answer the question relating to Danny's job. Uh, um, I, I look forward to the answer, though. Um, I think with regard to carbon emissions, I mean, we've done a lot of policy on this. Um, and I don't think that... Uh, and clearly, if government is doing a lot of policy historically on uh, carbon emissions, you know, there has been a degree of 
market failure um, on that. And it was a policy decision not only to set up the Department of Energy and Climate Change, which has now been kind of dissolved, but also the Climate Change Act, various other bits of policy. I remember when um, Amber Rudd, I think, was Secretary of State for Energy, she said that we wouldn't have any coal by 2025. And that, as far as I understand, that's still the policy. I'm not sure. I haven't heard anyone rebut it, uh, although I haven't heard it for a while. Um, and so I think, you know, it will be, it is policy-led. It's led by politicians, I think, uh, that, that particular debate. Um, with regard to Brexit, I think, and I've been on endless Brexit panels, I think the problem we have in London and in the media generally is that we're all what I call um, sort of vulgar Marxists. And I'll explain what I mean. We, we reduce absolutely everything to economic causes. Um, all the debate is about the economy. All the debate is about perceived uh, economic benefit or harm. Um, and actually, a large portion of the Brexit debate was, wasn't about economics. It was about culture. It was about identity. It was about a sense of frustration at the political class, not necessarily driven by economic uh, frustrations. Because like the Trump voters, I mean, the, the average Trump voter was far wealthier than the average American. Um, and so I think reducing everything to economics or the idea that if you built a bridge here or built a road there or filled a pothole here or there, somehow that would radically have changed um, that political outcome, I think, is naive. Uh, and I've, as a historian, I always battle against vulgar Marxist theories or explanations because actually human life is a lot more complicated than pure economic, you know, profit and loss, cost-benefit. And that's a mistake that a lot of journalists and a lot of politicians, frankly, people in my trade make. Okay. Um, well, Danny, there's a direct question to you there. Yeah, I'm not going to answer the third question. I'm not sure I could top what Quasi just said. Um, uh, so uh, the organizers can tell you why they invited me. Um, uh, uh, but I was pleased to accept the invitation because I think that the experience of a multilateral development bank, um, especially a newly created multilateral development bank in which the UK is strongly involved, um, is relevant and interesting in the context of a policy process that's, 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 that's going on here. Um, the AIB operates on an absolutely multilateral basis. We have policies and standards and governance which are uh, very familiar to those of you who've worked with the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank who are our kind of peer uh, uh, institutions and that is recognized as such not least through the strong partnerships to develop projects in Asia that we've, that we've made with other multilateral uh, institutions, much uh, co-financing and, and, and other uh, partnerships. Um, but I also think the AIB has an opportunity to uh, develop its own, um, uh, its own way of doing things. We want to be an institution that's lean, clean, and green, we talk about. Um, you know, to be uh, meeting high standards, particularly of environmental and, on environmental and social issues and on procurement issues, but doing so in a way that is efficient and meets the needs of our, uh, of our, of our client countries. And I think all those things are interesting and relevant uh, both to the UK's contribution to developing the AIB and also to this um, uh, discussion. Um, funnily enough, in the, in the second question, uh, it, it does take me back a little bit to the, um, the, the, the debates we had when we originally proposed setting up the Green Investment Bank. Because one of the, uh, one of the issues and one of the you know, market failures it was set up to address was the fact that in 
areas of investment that were important to that agenda, but not that well understood in the markets, um, a new institution could really help in, uh, in bringing forward finance for those areas that are or were then at the frontier. As we said earlier, you know, the offshore wind is, is now kind of very well understood. But, but back in 2010, it was not well understood. The market was reluctant to invest. I would argue because the risks were misunderstood, but in any case, they were not well understood. And the Green Investment Bank really helped to catalyze those investments to meet the goal of the net zero emissions. There will have to be many further developments that are at the frontier. Um, and one role that institutions can play is to constantly work to bring forward the investment and to develop the understanding in those areas of infrastructure investment that are at the frontier to meet those goals. That could be a purpose uh, for a new institution. It was the purpose of the Green Investment Bank. I think it successfully uh, uh, met those goals, but there are also other ways of meeting that objective. Okay, I'll invite Robert and Tamsin. I'll just make two very, very quick comments. I'm just picking up on, on Danny's point. Um, that the renewable energy side of our business is, it, it is very significant. It's, um, we're, we're investing a lot of time and resource in, in, into that. Um, uh, and we, we've certainly seen an awful lot of offshore and onshore wind. Um, and, and we're still moving forward. We're seeing subsidies come down, which was Danny's point about when it started off, the subsidies were higher, the subsidies are coming down, yet we're still, it's still a very, very important um, part of our, our business going forward. Um, just on the, um, would the same decision been made around Brexit? I mean, I think I'd just take that back to some of my opening remarks, and that was that obviously that the capital spend on PFI and PPP pre-2010 was over 50 billion. So we're going back almost um, 20 years when that program really was what was moving forward. So. There's been an awful lot of monies um, spent via the PFI um, in terms of key infrastructure, especially around health, especially around transport, and especially around education. So there has been investment in that um, uh, over the years. So I, I would say at the moment there's not as much investment as there has been in the past. Tamsin. I'm going to just take the risk of commenting very briefly on, on the Brexit question. Uh, I think it's absolutely too much to say, uh, it would be too much to say that we could have avoided Brexit had there been more investment in regional infrastructure. I'm, I'm glad you picked up the, the point I've been making there. But I think based on international experience, I can certainly say that there's always a lot of interest from politicians and from voters in, in, in investment in infrastructure because it's kind of the most visible way of showing the love uh, and, and therefore tends to inspire the, the votes. So to that extent, I, I do think that there are messages coming from parts of the UK that they, they feel in some way neglected and less loved. So there's all the debate about investment in Northern Rail compared to, to London. And so there, there's something in your point, and I would just pick up the serious point as being we do need investment in regional infrastructure. Uh, and Heathrow wouldn't necessarily be on the top of the, the list for public subsidy. <laughs> I well, guess. I mean, my view Especially about Heathrow is—I'm very obviously strongly interested in it—is um, just decide one way or the other. I mean, I happen to be a supporter, but this this debate's been going on for 15 years, mm. and it's almost like a theological debate that never actually reaches a conclusion. <laughs> you know, people would—you know, like in those medieval universities, they discuss the nature of the Trinity for 150 years. 
course, you know, there's no... Um, and, 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 uh, and I just I think, I think we, could, we could do better than that. Well, you know when you get to the point in the evening when you're discussing the merits of the Trinity, it's uh, time to draw uh, the unit to a close. We could, we could let it run a little, but I think to, in the interest of the schedule we set ourselves, you know, we started a little bit late, we should, we should uh, draw it to a close. But to thank our panellists, and let me say on behalf of the Commission that we, we are very interested in all the points of view that have been raised this evening, but, but in the wider issue, because come mid-July when we publish our... Uh, national infrastructure assessment. Um, we are likely to say something. It could be fairly anodyne or it could be something quite sharp on the topic of this evening. Um, we're still formulating our views, so I can guarantee that people who spoke this evening are genuinely contributing to uh, the views of the Commission at this, this point. And uh, uh, I hope those of you who are coming to these issues for the first time uh, see that there really are some important and lively uh, issues in this particular corner of the Brexit debate, I suppose you could call it, but it has these wider implications about uh, the kind of infrastructure that we're likely to have in the UK, particularly given our time horizon, which I'll remind you is out to 2050, which will likely encompass a number of different governments uh, with different objectives, so we are trying to look through the, the possible uh, political cycles that might happen over that period, and, uh, which is a very challenging thing. But let me, again, thank all of the panelists for their um, very uh, candid and insightful contributions this evening, and thank you all for coming. That's right.